All right, man. Welcome to the introduction to episode 51 for Crow 777 Radio Podcast. I have Jason Lindgren with me, and we are going to take a look at Eastern, the Eastern mind, the Eastern way of thinking. Um, after all, things like Freemasonry owe their roots and their ideas to things like Buddhism, Hinduism, and other supposed ancient religions which come out of India. When we look at the writings that we can still get our hands on, things like the Dhammapada, the Bhagavad Gita, you really do find a mindset that is very different than the Western mindset. In some ways, the Western mindset has become so materialistic as to be almost a polar opposite of what we see from the old writings in the East or what we are told are old writings from the East. The opening lines of the Dhammapada I was first exposed to when I was much younger than I am now. Um, and, and that teaching or those words say that the mind precedes everything. For me, these are true words. I've tested it. I've challenged it. And in fact, in my view, the mind does precede everything. It precedes your reality. It makes your reality. It precedes your illusion. It'll make your illusion. If we consider that the mind is a bit like software, to use an analogy, and everything that we see, the news, the media, the things that we learn, the things that we do in a day, are a bit like the programming for that software, the lines of code that are driving it. And you can really see how if a person just sat in front of cable news all day long, at some point when you talk to them, it's really like you're not talking to that person anymore. It's like you're talking to a programmed version of what the media has inserted into their minds. But anyhow, this is an interesting episode. Um, for those of you that find something that resonates, maybe you'll take a look at things like the Dhammapada and just check out the differences between a culture in the East back in the day, we were told, and the way they were thinking about things and how we think about things in the West. And I think it's critical for us to do this. So few of us are able to travel these days for various reasons. Travel's become a big hassle to get on a plane. Um, here in the United States, the middle class is about decimated. So many of us just don't have the funds or the, the cash to go travel and see other parts of the world. You know, there's an old quote from Mark Twain, I don't remember exactly how it goes, but basically it comes down to travel is fatal to bigotry um, and, and this kind of idea. And I think there's a lot of truth there. When you go and explore other cultures, um, you find that they're just people like you and I. They bleed like you and I. They have children like you and I. They want the best for their families like you and I. And, you know, uh, there's a lot to be said for that in the age where the news is constantly pushing fear. We need to be afraid of Middle Eastern people. We need to be afraid of Russia. There's a war coming. All this nonsense that is generated from the news with, you know, at the grassroots of things, if all of us, just the regular people, carefully looked at other cultures and got to know them and met the people, this would probably be a vastly different world. But anyhow, this episode seeks to very broadly demonstrate some of the thinking that came out of eastern areas of our world and provided roots for some of the secret societies. And in my, my view, those are perversions. Things like Freemasonry have perverted the teachings that they based what they got, um, seemingly watered-down versions, but uh, where we find in the eastern ideas that these teachings were supposed to be for everybody, a path for anyone and everyone. And then when we get into the secret societies, it's not that at all. But anyhow, let's jump into episode 51 with Jason Lindgren. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio Podcast. This is, where are we, Jason? Are we on 51 here? I think we are on 51. Yep. Um, 
we're going to be taking a look. We're going to step away a bit from a typical show because we cover so many things that people could find depressing. And I wanted to step back and compare and contrast the mindsets of the eastern part of the world with the western part of the world. And in that, we will have to explain in very high level, not really detailed, but high level terms, um, certain belief systems and certain mindsets that have come from the east. Almost all these things are coming out of India if you follow them all the way back. Um, but the reason I think it matters is because almost certainly the modern Masonic traditions and the supposed secrets that they claim to hold hold their lineages back through things like Buddhism, Hinduism, and other ancient Indian traditions. Uh, most people aren't aware of this, um, but it almost seems like a lot of the occult knowledge that was initially in the world at some time seems to have stemmed out of India. And there are plenty of examples that you can go look up and read that demonstrate that boot, that uh, masonry seems to have its lineage through these paths back through the Eastern occult traditions and religious traditions, but almost like they got a watered-down version of it. Um, in what we cover, there is a top-level idea that people should be aware of. It's even, you know, I, I made a joke of it in the thumbnail, the line from the Zeppelin song. Yes, there are two paths you can go down, but in the long run. The idea here um, is that there is a dark path and a light path. In some of the traditions we're going to talk about, it is supposed, and by the way, I'm not upping any religion or downing any religion. I'm simply putting information out on the table for people to consider because I think it's important for people in the West to know something about people of the East, vice versa. Um, but it is supposed that in the light path in these traditions, the people that follow a path of so-called light, and you'll notice how that relates to masonry by, masonry by their own claims, um, that you leave this world on that path. It is further supposed that on a dark path, you're recycled back into this world. And again, I'm not telling you whether these things are true or false. I am addressing the systems that have come down and been adopted by Western systems like uh, like masonry. But anyhow, welcome, welcome, Jason. Hey, this is, I think this is going to be an interesting talk. Yeah, we got to thread the needle here. Um, I'm hoping we can get people to consider the things we're talking about, maybe for people who have never heard anything about Buddhism or any of the other Eastern philosophies, which really demonstrates a different kind of mindset. As an example, here in the West, you know, you'll meet a lot of people that have never seen a dead body. And in our daily life, we push death away. Um, as a, it's almost like a Western cultural tradition and someone in your family dies, you may or may not even see them before the man whisks them away under these surgical conditions. And the next thing you're handed this thing of ashes and we go through our lives never having considered it. Well, by contrast, in a lot of the Eastern traditions, much of the daily life that they consider is with the understanding that someday this is going to end. And what can we do now to provide a better path for when that day comes? And actually, it even goes further than that in a lot of traditions. We'll talk about it a bit. What happens after we die? Right. And while I'm not, no, yeah, I'm not claiming that there's some hard, fast, you know, guaranteed book you can read that tells you what happens after you die after you die I am telling you that I think it's very important to understand what other very seemingly very old traditions do yeah and the one thing I could say after reexamining eastern philosophies versus western philosophies is that 
a lot of Western culture is about denial and just not dealing with a situation. That's that's in the in the body thing was is a very good example of that. Right. I mean, death is the perfect example of that. We're taught to fear it when that doesn't really make much sense because every living thing that we ever see is going to die. So if it's that common, if it's that universal, why is it a thing to be feared and why isn't it addressed in a more open manner? Yeah, exactly. So before we start uh, really getting into descriptions of the various philosophies of the East, I thought it might be cool to have a discussion on on what paths you've taken in your life and and why you've drawn so much from the Eastern philosophies. Well, one thing about the Eastern philosophies, and I will preface this conversation by by stating flat out verbatim, I belong to no organization or organized religion of any kind. Um, I am my own person, and I believe that each person has the ability to lift themselves spiritually as a human being to higher levels, and they don't. It's great to have a teacher if you meet a good one in life, but in terms of joining a group, um, that's just not the way I choose to go. But Initially, when I began at a very, very young age, probably still in my late teens, to look at other traditions, um, I began to realize that in some of them, you're being told, don't believe this, challenge it. As an example, there's a text called the Dhammapada, and the opening lines of that text have meant a lot to me my entire life, and it basically comes down to that your mind precedes your reality. Mind precedes everything. And I've covered that before in this show. Um, You can logically go out that and break that down and understand that it is really not an arguable thing if you have the mind to do it. And when you contrast it to where we are in the West, like with something like all the false news that comes at us, well, what is that false news doing? Well, it's changing our minds, isn't it? And so if our mind truly does precede everything, then these things that are going on in information systems are certainly geared at affecting our minds. Yeah, absolutely. Any, anyhow, I, I don't know how well I answered that, Jason, but you, you can keep pushing through or you can, you can readdress the question if I let something drop there. No, that's fine. I just kind of wanted to see where you were at with it. And um, I kind of went through something similar where I was raised in a Methodist home, but very, very loose. And once I got into my mid to late teens, I started exploring different, just kind of everything, really. I started looking at different religions, different faiths and all that. Uh, I've had various spiritual experiences over the course of my lifetime. So nothing... I have ever experienced has has nailed down any one religion for me, just proven to me the existence that there is more than what we perceive in the physical reality. So I, I'm extremely open-minded about everything, and um, the one thing I know is that I don't know. Yeah, and, and to be clear, I'm less interested in religions of any kind. What I am interested in is the knowledge, um, the things that I can challenge, the things that I can either adopt or throw away or temporarily say this is interesting. Um, and and for a lot of the Eastern traditions, and I will preface, um, even in early Christianity, you can find that meditation was a big part of things, and it seems to have kind of bled away from what the West does in Christianity now, but early on there were vows of silence and all kinds of mind sciences uh, associated with Christian Christianity. That was one of the things that really began to pique my interest in the Eastern uh, philosophies, because the idea was the betterment. Not just saying I believe in a thing, but trying to actually train your mind to do better. 
And that's what really got me looking harder, looking at more cultures, um, going back through India, looking at everything I could get my hands on, regardless of country, just to see what these people were doing in terms of betterment, actually working on trying to better yourself in this lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of obvious when you do look at all these that uh, the modern version of Christianity is kind of like a watered-down version of the earlier philosophies that are from the East. You can see how things kind of filtered through as as uh, humankind would have spread out throughout the world. Well, I think the truth, you, you could say the same things about Buddhism, I believe, Jason, where, um, I mean, if someone was to come up and ask me, was the Buddha a real person? Um, the first things that I notice is, well, of course, he's got the glowing head. And then when you begin to look in it, it certainly begins to look like the sun is being encoded in these ideas. But you see, there are levels and levels of information in almost any major religion, although as an example, I don't think Buddhism is counted as a major religion anymore. I think it might have been when I was a kid. But anyhow, um, that's not really what I'm interested in. Um, I have met people um, who were lamas and others. As a matter of fact, I will say this. This is one thing that had a huge effect on me. When I was probably in my 20s, I saw a piece of footage where a lama, I think probably in Nepal, was doing his death meditation, and he completely went into death, totally in control, sitting upright even after he was gone and the monks came and put a shroud on him. As a matter of fact, there's a movie out there called, I think it's called Little Buddha with Keanu Reeves where they actually you know, do a scene with this idea in it. But this was a real thing where they had actually filmed a monk going into his death meditation. And he just, he met death in a way that was completely foreign to me. I, I mean, I was a Western person thinking, man, I'm, death is far away. I don't need to think about this. I'm afraid of death, all these things. And here was a man who came in, went into meditation in an upright position, sitting or kneeling or whatever it was. I think he was sitting. He had robes on and he died in that same position, seemingly taking on death, totally in control of his mind. And that was one of the things that really hooked me. And how, how different from the, the very violent uh evil portrayal, you almost might say, of the Western uh, media that were handed on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, this is the this is the conundrum for me. This is one of the things that's helped me push mainstream news and, and other things and movies and violence so far away because um, we're all going to die. Every single one of us is going to die. That means it is just another step in our existence. So how is it that we're all taught to fear this thing that we're not getting away from? I mean, even every bird you see, every plant you see, all of us are in the same boat here. And when I saw a human being go into death in that way, I thought, wait a minute, I got to know more about this. Right. And uh, when, as we're going to start going through these, you can see that uh, that is kind of right at the core of the way uh, that, that these early Eastern philosophies viewed it, too. That's, it's an acceptance of, of reality, really. Really, in, in a lot of ways, it's it's just really keen observation, and we're about to just break down some of the Buddhist tenets um, as a starting point. And again, we're, I'm not trying to convert anyone to Buddhism or convert anyone away from it. This is strictly just a knowledge-based look at these traditions so that people can have in their mind what other parts of the world have as their, you know, their daily thought process, the way they live. We're here in the West. We we have our way, other parts of the world have their ways, but I would submit 
we're all people. We're all the same. We all bleed. We all have children, or a lot of us do, and we want the best for our children. In these commonalities, we should learn that any old culture probably has something to teach us, and that's why I go at it in the way that I do. Right, and the preface to all this is the uh, the reality of any historical reality to these figures. Uh, it's it's very questionable. Some of them, some that are that are more recent, uh, probably did exist, but some of these earlier ones, Buddha and all that, they're they're really not sure. They, it could be an amalgamation of different monks or stories kind of put together. So uh, just with all religious uh, iconic figures. Bear in mind that they're not what we're going to go through. It may not necessarily be historically accurate, but more of a representation. Right. And the, and the, for me, that doesn't even matter anymore. I don't, you know, I'm suspect of all historical personages. The further back in history they supposedly come from, the more suspect I am. But that's not what's important to me here. Um, as an example, what's important to me is the idea of examining the suffering of the world, that's a big part of the initial steps into Buddhism where they take the time to examine what they see going on in the life of any given thing around them. Those are the things that I think are critical because you can examine them, challenge them, and you're not stuck in the position of saying, wait a minute, did this person really exist? Um, I set all that aside. I'm more interested in the philosophy and the things that I can challenge. Right, and that's the important part, is understanding why we're discussing this in the first place, what the philosophical backgrounds and why this became something that all these monks flourished for centuries and, and why they embraced it. So the first one, of course, we're going we're gonna to discuss is the Buddha, who's also known as the Awakened One. The story of the Buddha's life, like all of Buddhism's philosophies, is a story about confronting suffering. He is said to have been the son of a wealthy king living somewhere between the 4th and 6th centuries BC. There was a prophecy made to the king that this person, his son, would become either the emperor of India or a very holy man. His father, of course, wanted him to become an emperor, so he kept him living in luxury, completely isolated in a palace for 29 years. He then started leaving the palace for short excursions. First, he met a sick man, next time an aging man, and then a dying man. He found that these unfortunate people were actually a normal representation of everyday people. The things he saw were inevitable parts of the human condition that would one day touch him as well. He was horrified and fascinated, and is said to have made a fourth trip outside the palace, and this time he encountered a holy man. This holy man had learned to seek spiritual life in the midst of the vastness of human suffering. This inspired him to leave the palace for good. He tried to learn from other holy men. He starved himself by avoiding all physical comforts as he saw them doing, but this did not bring him solace from suffering. He then thought of a moment when he was a small boy sitting by a river. He noticed that when the grass had been cut, the insects and their eggs were trampled and destroyed. He had felt a deep compassion for them even as a child. So, thinking on this compassion, he felt a profound sense of peace. He ate, meditated, and then reached the highest state of enlightenment known as nirvana. This is said to be the blowing out of the flames of desire. With this profound self-realization, he had become the Buddha, or the Awakened One. He recognized that all of creation are all unified by suffering. Right. And so let's preface. That was really a very kind of nutshell and actually one of the many versions of the story of the supposed Buddha's life. But the things that are important here 
is the idea of this place being surrounded with suffering and how do we address the suffering in our lives. And the idea in the Eastern mindset that in in this story, as one of the examples, and there are many variations on this, um, he even felt compassion for these little bugs because they were alive. Um, These are are kind of mindsets that we don't really have too much in the West, which is why I think it's so important to look at them. And I would remind everybody – that if, in fact, it is true that the Masonic traditions in the West owe their roots to these Eastern mindsets, um, then there is a there there that we should look at and examine and challenge. Yep, absolutely. So in the next part of the story, recognizing all this unification of suffering, he discovered he discovered how best to approach suffering. We shouldn't bathe in luxury or abstain from food and comforts altogether. Instead, one should live in moderation. This he called the middle way. This allows for maximal concentration on cultivating compassion for others and seeking enlightenment. So in the West, we actually have a an old cliched saying that addresses this very thing, all things in moderation. It's really no different. Uh, quite often, people would be familiar with the story of a man tuning a stringed instrument where he's teaching his students saying, see, if the, the string is too tight, it's not correct. If it's too slack, it won't play. But if it's that medium middle way, it's just right and you can play music. There are many versions of this kind of Eastern philosophy. And again, we have a, a companion way of thinking uh, with moderation in the West. It's also the, the whole too much, uh, too much excess, it leads to decadence and all that. So uh, a lot of these kings and rich people would be seen to be living in absolute luxury apart from the masses, which generally were poor and sometimes even starving and, and sick and all that and had had, noth- had next to nothing. So, you know, that we don't think of it as much in, in Western culture because even the poorer people here in Western culture have more than a lot of people di- would have in the past. Right. And what's interesting to me is what you're about to talk about, how they examine these ideas and they try to kind of codify them. They break them down into parts so they can begin to address them. And I would also point out, you know, maybe Maybe the seven deadly sins, you know, the ideas from the West in some way relates to this way of thinking. Right. So next we have a path to transcending suffering, the four noble truths. The first, there is suffering and constant dissatisfaction in the world. This is this is a, an interesting thing for people who have never encountered these ideas about the four noble truths. Um which, again, you should challenge these things. You should think about them. If there's something there you think is valuable, then great. If not, then you should throw it aside. Simple as that. And I think in a lot of these traditions, it actually tells you that. But um, we in the West tend to think we're happy when we have a nice home, uh, when we have a good car, when we're making a lot of money. But in what we're about to break down here, um, that is actually uh, piling on the suffering. We just don't realize it. It's a bit like being in a prison cage for so long that you don't want to be outside the prison cage anymore because you're so used to and have gotten used to how exist in the prison cage. But anyhow, go ahead, Jason. The second the suffering is caused by, by our desires. Attachment is the root of all suffering. The third, we can transcend suffering by removing or managing these desires. We must change our outlook, not our circumstances. We are unhappy not because we don't have enough money, love, or status, 
but because we are greedy, vain, and insecure. By reorienting the, our mind, we can grow to be content. The people become happier, superimpose smiles, or use a second image of their face. With the correct behavior and what we now term a midfield attitude, we can also become better people. We can invert negative emotions and states of mind, turning ignorance into wisdom, anger into compassion, and greed into generosity. Mind precedes all plays into that. Go ahead. And the fourth, we can learn to move beyond suffering through the noble eightfold path. This involves a series of aspects of behaving right and wisely, and they are as follows. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So you can see how this is now starting to get off into mind sciences and this simple kind of, you know, fourfold path or the Four Noble Truths starts to break off. Now it's up to eight. This goes on and on in these traditions, um, and it just shows the extent to which they will observe and address and challenge the ideas that are being set forth. And it's an interesting thing. Recently, a family member of mine was in an auto accident, and they required a surgeon uh, to, re to fix a broken bone. And it turned out that the surgeon was headed off to uh, offer his orthopedic skills in Bhutan. And I was talking to him about it. And it was an interesting conversation because we were both aware that in Bhutan, although there is still a king there, I, I believe recently in Bhutan, they're going to more what they call democracy. By the way, television just made it into Bhutan. So we'll see how long anything lasts there that used to be. Um, I asked him, you know, have you been to this part of the world before? He's all, yeah, I've actually donated my, my surgery skills there many times. I've been all over that parts of the world. And I asked him about it, and he said the one thing – he told me flat out, um, I don't think any religion has figured it all the way out. I don't belong to any of these religions. But he, he made this observation. In the Buddhist nations that were there, he said he's never seen a more contented and happier group of people, which I thought was interesting. But then we started talking about the king in uh, Bhutan, and the primary concern, supposedly, of this government is a thing called gross national happiness. That's one of the primary concerns, and that is such a contrast to the West, where we're all sitting here suffering with corporations. I mean, right now I'm dealing with insurance companies. It's like a nightmare. And I sometimes think in Bhutan, you know, is it true? Is there gross national happiness there? Are, are all the people really acting like this is a thing they can hold on to and benefit from? I've never been there, so I can only take it on second hand. But there's a a real contrast between that part of the world speaking with a person who's been there and how we live here. Uh, Western observers would note that the notion of wisdom is a habit, not merely an intellectual realization, which is a lot of people in Western society are kind of looking for that aha moment. The idea here is that you're cultivating wisdom throughout your life. It's an approach. So one must exercise one's nobler impulses on a regular basis as one would train a limb. The moment of understanding is only one part of becoming a better person. So basically, it's a lifestyle choice. Right. And this is another interesting thing. And this doesn't pertain to just Buddhism, although uh, I know in Tibetan Buddhism, there's a lot of lineage. In other words, if there's some teaching that they have, they have a lineage all the way back to the person who supposedly founded this idea or this path. And if the chain of custody of this teaching is ever broken, then it's invalidated. To me, that was a big deal. 
Um, as a young person, I was exposed to Western law, the idea of the chain of custody of evidence. And if it was broken, then the evidence couldn't be used anymore. And this is so much so important to me because when we get things like the news now, there's no chain of custody. There's no tracing back where this information came from, and it's all nonsense. And so this was another thing that I thought was a very interesting idea. And to me, it offered some validity, a reason to look, a reason to challenge, a reason to seek some meaning there. Because why were these people taking so much time to say, I got this teaching from this guy who got it from this guy who got and it would go back hundreds of years, maybe over a thousand in many cases. And I thought that was a big deal. But anyhow, go ahead, Jason. Well, let's say that the notable point of all this, backing off from the notion of being religion, but just more a, a viewpoint, regardless of an individual's spiritual identification or their religious beliefs, these teachings are important because no matter what, we are all born into the world without the realization of how much suffering it actually holds. So these teachings are a reminder of the importance of facing suffering directly. We must do our best every day to liberate ourselves from the hold our own desires have over us. We must recognize that our suffering is the one connection we all have in common. This should inspire us all to be compassionate and gentle, and I can completely agree with that. Well, yeah. Um, and, and in a lot of ways in the West, we have rampant materialism, which in a way seeks to mask the idea that there's any suffering going on. In other words, I just got this great new car or I got this great new house or I got a big promotion at work. I'm making a lot of money. Um, it almost in a way masks um, our ability to understand that really – None of those things took away the suffering and the end the end idea that we all have to, to go through the door called death. Um, as a matter of fact, in, in the Western tradition, having been brought Christ, up Christian myself, um, you know, look at the big Christian holiday. It's Christmas. I mean, that is rampant materialism. There's really no religious portion for most people left in Christmas. It's just become this materialistic idea where we do all these things because that's the way we've always done it. Um, and that's another reason why I think it's important to look at these other mindsets. Right. There's a couple things I'd like to add in here, just starting off with the Buddhist philosophy. In, in Western culture, Everyone's all about the uh, the accumulation of wealth and just, as you said, materialism and all that. And, you know, you hear it said that, that millionaires and billionaires are sometimes the most miserable people in the world. It's almost like a chain to them. Um, that does That wouldn't surprise me because, to be perfectly honest with you, as long as you have enough to get by and survive in a reasonable way without struggling or starving, obviously, uh, materialism is just distraction. You're just looking to go from one distraction to the next. So the more money you have, you're just doing bigger and bigger distractions because because you're not actually focusing on things that are important, such as uh, being compassionate and caring for yourself and others. Right. And I broke this down uh, in a show or two ago where I was talking about, you know, we basically sleep for a third of our life. We work for roughly a third of our life. And then in that old, the only third we have left to, you know, live and look around and learn and grow, um, we have to deal with so many of the things that all this materialism brings. I have a car now. I have to get insurance. Um, I'm making a lot of money now or I have a house. So I have to deal with all these things that are wrapped into that. It's almost like the materialistic system is by design uh, like like quicksand. It's like the more you get, the further you slip in because you have to deal with each little thing you add. Um, it's, it's crazy to think about. 
Well, I think that's absolutely intentional, you know. Whoever the true bad guys behind all of the things going on in the world are, I, I would say that they don't need to put chains on us anymore. They've done it economically, you know. They they've got us all trained to 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 want to want more and more and more and we have to work and achieve to have these things and the, the reality of it is we really don't need that much we we need we need shelter we need food you know we all those kinds of things but you don't need the lamborghini uh the honda fit i have is actually quite good enough and i'm happy with that yeah i, I mean if you could consider some of the stuff we're going to cover here where supposedly there were people who left society to go do meditation to try to become higher human beings. Um, but you see, the culture they were in provided for that. There would be people who were everyday workaday people, farmers or others, who would provide or maybe a monastery would make sure that that person had food delivered so that they could sit in that cave or on that mountaintop and pursue these mind sciences. When you bring that back around to what if someone in, you know, here in Rhode Island, where I am, decided they wanted to do that. We don't have any, you know, built-in way for that kind of thing to go on. It would be pretty difficult for the average person. And it goes to show that foundationally in the West, most of our culture is built on materialism at this point. And so trying to step away from the construct around us becomes a lot more difficult if you think about it. Absolutely. And these people, of course, their lifestyle is to live with less. Now, I'm not saying that, um, I, I mean, let me put it this way. I love technology. I love having these these things here. I love to create with technology. So it's not that I, I think either one of us is suggesting to just uh, give it all up and go live in a cave somewhere. It's, it's more the point of really looking at life and being appreciative for what you have and realize that what you really don't need. Right. You know, I, I saw a documentary not too long ago about television arriving in Bhutan. Um, and again, this is a place where supposedly gross national happiness is a big deal to the entire culture, including supposedly the king, um, if these are true things. In that, uh, there was a family who would work in the field and the the adult female had told, I think, uh, an uncle, look, you've got to go trek three days to get a TV because I'd like the television to take care of my kids so I can go out in the field and work more at ease. And I'm watching this go on. So they set off on this trek to go get this TV. And by the way, the first TV falls off a horse and gets broken. So I think, <laughs> they, I think they have to go back and get another one so you can begin to see the suffering attached to the materialism. But That, that also sounds like the universe trying to tell them something. <laughs> yeah, it's it'll be interesting to see what happens with, with television just making it into Bhutan. But at one point, the uncle is there with the child who's apparently going to be taken care of by the television while the mother's in the field. Um, and the first thing they see in the big city is wrestling, Western-style wrestling. And the kid asks the uncle, the child asks the uncle, 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 is that real? And the uncle says, I don't think it could be real because for a human being to take that much of a beating, they would have to be dead. But I don't know for sure. And I thought that so encapsulates uh, the world that we live in here. Um, but anyhow, anyone with an interest to, to see what happens next is, you know, apparently television is just now making it into Bhutan. So, you know, I would imagine before too many years goes by, there's going to be some real changes and the westernization of, of this place will begin to set in. Well, this is the problem. They're not uh, using television as a tool. You know, the actual concept of the television isn't necessarily bad. If they're letting in Western garbage like 
wrestling, and I'm sorry if you like wrestling, it's just entertainment. I don't have a problem with it from that standpoint, but it's it's not anything. It's it's just another distraction. It's it's if you like it, that's cool, you know. But 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 think about this, Jason. So here you're in Bhutan, the city they're going to get the television is in Bhutan, and the programming is violence or mock violence. Um, you you don't think there's probably intent behind that? When I watched it, I certainly thought, you know, why would you go into a Buddhist nation where gross gross national happiness and uh, the apparent respect for all living things is high on their their culture. Uh, would you put violence or mock violence as one of the programs that goes in there? You can kind of see the intent behind it. I oh, think. Oh yeah, that's exactly what I'm getting at. The, the television yeah. itself, as an as a as a device, is not necessarily a bad thing. But that's what you're putting on there instead of using it as an, maybe an information tool or you know that kind of thing. It, just like a computer, you can do anything you want with it. And I have a problem with that. Why Why are they introducing television and the first thing they do is give them trash TV? Well, why are they – why, you know, for, for if, the, if the, the supposed king there still has any say in things or whether he's been co-opted by the wave that's going over the world, which is probably true, why would you even – why wouldn't you be telling your people maybe you don't want TV because you would have to know what it's done all over the world? You know, the idea that it's just a tool kind of in my mind falls short because – yeah, maybe it is just a tool like a knife or a sword. You could sit there and carve something or you could kill someone. But we all kind of know what's happened with TV and who has control over it. So if it was a knife, nothing beautiful is ever going to get carved with that TV. We know what it's going to do. Right. And I would be curious if they have Internet access. You know, do they do some people have computers and are able to connect with the wider world? And if so, then they would have a, a, a bigger idea of what's out there. You know, they're not just farmers and only knew that lifestyle. And that's it. Yeah, it'll be an interesting thing to watch. You know, I don't I don't watch a lot of things, but uh, I sat down and I watched that front to back and I just thought, wow, um, it'll be interesting to see what happens on the tail of this. All right. So Buddhism spread out. And the next uh, big name that kind of comes up would would be Confucius. I'm sure everyone's probably heard of him. He is said to have been born in 551 BC in China. And he may have also been a student of the Taoist master Lao Tzu, who we will also get to. His works were collected into what's called the Analects. This is a collection of his sayings that were written down by his followers. Now, he had his own version of the golden rule. Do not do unto others what you don't want done to yourself. And again, we have versions of this in the West, and I think we even have what we call the golden rule, which is basically this. Um, so you can see how some of these teachings kind of transcend culture. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, a lot of these things really are just basic common sense, too. Just like with Christianity, I mean, when you boil it down, it's just be nice to each other. Don't be a jerk, you know, like society flourishes if everyone's cool with each other, you know. Yeah, there's there's no doubt. Um, there there's a lot to be gleaned from each of these things, and I, I think resonance is a big part of what we're going to cover. I think maybe some people would look at a particular thing, and there might not be resonance there for them, and so it would probably mean less to that individual. But for some, they'll find resonance here and there, and maybe that's a, a way for them to to find out some things that they can challenge, and then either accept or discard. The other thing I really like about Eastern philosophies that maybe we could put here is that although it's it's like a philosophy you follow, like you're – I don't want to say you're part of a group, but a mindset perhaps, 
it's still about individualism. Your journey is still your own through meditation and all that. That's not something you share with anyone else. You are your own mind, and what you're getting out of the meditation is unique to you, and no one else could possibly get inside that. So that's something that I really like about Eastern philosophy is still it's, it's very, uh, very much about individualism. Right. It's in a way, maybe it's kind of like someone choosing to be a vegetarian, right? You know, it's not necessarily that they've joined the vegetarian organization. I mean, in some ways they have, but more more truly, it's a personal decision, right? Um, I'm going to do this personally and monitor what I put in my body because I think this is correct. And that becomes exactly what you're pointing out here. It's a personal decision where it's a, a personal observation for personal betterment that really doesn't have a lot to do with an overarching organization as a whole. It, I can also relate this to something that you have to deal with on a regular basis. People are always trying to drag you into the whole flat earth thing. And that's, that's a group. A lot of people are out there battling on a daily basis and arguing the fact that the earth is flat versus the earth is round. You don't do that. You're just saying this is what I'm seeing based off of observations, but I'm not putting my foot in any camp. You're just looking at it objectively and saying, I have done this this work. This is what I see. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a, a perfect example. And to some degree, you've nailed it. I can say what I observe. I can say what I've challenged and I currently think is likely correct, but I can't give you a new map of this place. And And even if any of these ideas that are now coming pretty solidly into place that are, you know, refuting the orbital model, I always choose to go more broadly because at the root of these things, if we begin to prove some of them out, the questions that arise are much bigger than the actual starting point. Um, And yeah, I, I just, I think it's more helpful to go at it as an individual, make your observations, add what you can and throw it out there. If it sticks to the wall, then people will benefit. But the minute you began saying, you know, I'm a member of the Flat Earth Organization, these other things, uh, it almost implies that you can draw a new map of the world now. And I just don't really think that's helpful. Right. And and the reason why I bring that up is because uh, I've heard you on a lot of other shows. You know, I've, I've heard just about everything you've done, especially before you and I became friends. Uh, I always thought it was very interesting because one of the first things anyone tried to do was put you in a box. And I didn't like that because the first thing you would say is like, well, hold on here, you know. So I, I, that is like absolutely something that human beings as a rule do. They they want to chop and dice and put things in individual little parts and say, well, I know what this is. This is this is this person. Crow is a flat earther. That's what he is. And that's how I'm going to start this interview. And this is where I'm going to go with it. And the first thing you do is say, now, hang on a second. That's not what I said. No, um, what I say is I don't accept the orbital model. What is I? What I say is we're we're not in the spin cycle. You know, I, I don't accept these things. I know for first from firsthand observation, I know that we can see too far, and that says a lot about what we've been told. But in no way, shape, or form does that allow me to draw a new map. But at the same time, I'm very happy to see people out there trying to draw the new map. So important. But once you begin to join the groups, you know, if the group does something silly, you kind of inherit some of that silliness. And if they start to believe in things that are, you know, mistakes, then you kind of inherit that. And you can see where it's it's almost like the cascade effect, where maybe it would be better off if everybody just went off uh, at their own direction with their own method. Maybe it's not scientific. Maybe it's not even rational. But whatever it is you think you've got, throw it out there. See if it matters. And um, if it does, then hopefully it goes further. Um, It's a good point, Jason.
Right. And the only reason I'm bringing this up at all is I, I want everyone who's listening to this just to remember to be yourself. Don't don't go along with something just because a group is, you know, that, and this is what something I'm draw, I myself am drawing from the Eastern philosophy is just remember that you're your own person and make your decisions based off your own personal observations. So anyway, uh, getting back to Confucius, uh, the next thing he, he would push is that ceremony is very important. He valued what he called ritual propriety things that we would look forward to on a regular basis that would bring us comfort and, st and uh, stir our emotions deeply. Yeah, this, this is an interesting idea because in other Eastern traditions I've read about, um, like the Brahmanism, uh, there were Buddhists who had a, a problem with all the ritual things that had crept into Bra Brahmanism. But in some ways, if you examine what's being said here, it's almost like the Western idea of idle hands are the devil's tools. You know, if you really think about it and break it down, where we're doing these things and not necessarily because um, the ritual itself has some magical power, but what it does is keeps us from straying um, and doing these other things that might be helpful. And I know that's kind of a broad approach here, but I do kind of see a, a Western mirror in the idea of idle hands or the devil's playthings. Well, the other thing that Confucius was getting at here is that it's okay to have things that bring you comfort, like uh examples I saw used in some of the material I went through was there's a place you like to go on your birthday every year. It's just something you look forward to. It doesn't actually mean anything. It's just, I'm celebrating my birthday. I like to go here and eat this dinner. It brings you joy and comfort. Good. Yeah, there's there's no doubt. And the truth of this is, in a lot of the traditions that we examine, you know, if you wanted to be a hardcore monk, you're basically checking off the grid in a way out of culture. And that's not really possible for most of us in the Western world. So the truth is, you know, let's examine what's going on here. We all know we got to have a car to get to work. We all know we got to make money to eat. And so that kind of dictates how far we jump into any of these ideas. But at the base of it, if we change our minds, we really have changed something. Well, the other thing is if you uh, were a monk, the, the smaller things would be a lot of times all the, all the joy you would have. So a particular ceremony or situation might be the thing that brings you joy. And this gets back to the earlier uh, Buddhist. Uh, the thing that Buddha would say is that, you know, all things in moderation, the middle path. Um, it's okay to have some things that bring you comfort. You don't have to completely abstain from everything. That's right. And you'll find if you really examine in depth, as I have, like Tibetan Buddhism, the, one of the ideas is the further up the ladder you get um, towards this goal of being liberated or free or enlightened or whatever you want to call it, is that emotion falls away is that emotion is wasted motion. The idea that, you know, someone someone in your family died, but you don't cry because you've gone beyond the need to have that kind of emotion where if we examine that in the West, the average person would look at that and think, what's the matter with that person? They just lost a family member and they're not crying and they would find fault with it. Um, but this is exactly why we need to look at these things. Well, again, this goes back to the fact that uh, the suffering was accepted from the beginning, you know, that I already knew this person was going to die. I've already accepted the fact that this person's going to die, you're going to die, I'm going to die. So it's a little different than uh, the Western mentality where we, this is kind of, kind of a problem with it. If you cut yourself off from things and then when they happen, they're a lot more jarring and shocking to your psyche because you haven't thought about this before, at least not probably very much.
Right. It, it's a good point. Um, but the, there is no getting away from in these meditative traditions. Um, emotion is one of the things that goes away. And for the average person listening, you know, we, we talk about the elite or the royal families. And one of the complaints we hear so often is they're cold. You know, they're cold blooded. They how, how is it that they can't have compassion for all these people they're affecting? Um, so it's a real conflict of ideas here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the next thing with Confucius is that we should treat our parents with reverence. We should obey them when we are young, care for them when they are old, mourn at length when they die, and make huge sacrifices in their memory thereafter. He also said that we shouldn't travel far away while our parents are alive and should cover for them if they steal a sheep. <laughs> this is what he called filial piety. His notion is that our moral lives begin in the family and that we cannot truly be caring, wise, grateful, and conscientious unless we properly honor our parents. <laughs> so this goes a bit further than, than the Western tradition, but we certainly have in Christianity a counterpart for this in the Ten Commandments, and most people are, you know, honor their father and mother. Um, so so we do have a counterpart, but it, it is interesting to, to see how far he goes with it here. But anyhow, keep going. Right. And it, that is interesting. I, I agree with the, the groundwork that's being laid there in the sense that, you know, unless there's something actually wrong with your family and your parents are jackasses or something – the whole point is that these are the people who are going to try their best to bring you up the right way and instill in you proper moral concepts. So that's a good thing. Now, do you have to take it as far as this? I, I don't think so, <laughs> but it, it's important to at least be respectful of the concept. And that's how I feel about that. Well, one of the funny things there is, and you should cover for them if they steal a sheep. <laughs> that is funny. And and if you if you begin to break that down, well, stealing a sheep is wrong, right? So why are you covering for for the thing that is wrong? But um, here the idea is is that the familial relationship trumps all else, I guess. Right. That that you keep to your own, and that is uh, the the blood is thicker than water kind of thing, you know. Right. You know, and and actually some of the. Buddhist traditions, um, there is an unpar there are what it's called unpardonable sins, and one of them is to kill your mother or father. Um, it's stated in some of the things that I've studied that if you do that, that's it, man. You're in big trouble, and there ain't no way you're getting out from under it. Um, so there's another side of that whole life, familial idea. Go ahead. Next, we should be obedient to honorable people. I actually really like this one, by the way. I think this is something that we should all do because we have such a rigid corporate mentality now banged into us in the Western world that this, uh, this is interesting. This is an interesting way of looking at things. So let the ruler be a ruler, the subject a subject, a father a father, and a son a son. The idea is that there are people worthy of our deep veneration and even our simple and humble obedience. We need to be modest enough to recognize the people whose experience or accomplishments outweigh our own. We should also peaceably practice what these people need, ask, or command. The relation between superiors and inferiors is like that between the wind and the grass. The grass, <clears throat> the grass must bend when the wind blows across it. Bending gracefully is not a sign of weakness, but a gesture of humility and respect. I absolutely love that one. So this really speaks to the sign of the times, though, you know, uh, in the West with everyone's, you know, so mistrustful of all leadership, 
because we begin to see what's gone on, um, it's really hard to start to put this into practice in terms of, you know, let the ruler be the ruler when you can see the wrong that's being done. But if you take it down a few levels where there are probably people in your society, maybe the man who runs the baker, who is completely an honorable, honorable man, but you already started to, to, me, to reshape the idea in the way it's said here. Um, this is a very interesting thing to observe. Um, seemingly, maybe there was a time when things were not so mistrustful, but you know, you try to apply this to now, particularly at the highest levels of rulers being rulers, and it's almost impossible to make it fit. It's almost impossible to balance the ledger in some ways. Well, the other thing you can look at here is that uh, corporations are modern day lords and kings. You know, the head of the corporation, you will obey him. He's a dictator. It doesn't matter what you may know is right or wrong. If the CEO says it, it is so. And even if he's, he or she is completely wrong, you know, the, the line level person working in the factory or the store or whatever it happens to be may know far better based off of experience because they're there on the battlefield, as it were. And... They don't care. They don't want to hear from you. Their word is it. And um, that's why I think this that this philosophical viewpoint is very important. Yeah, for, for me, I just have a really hard time jiving it with the modern time we find because uh, so many of the kind of corporateness, um, the, the, the corporate fence that's around almost every facet of our Western life is problematic to me. And uh, it almost seems like a tool that was built that no longer serves the purpose it was built for in, in my eyes anyhow. But go go ahead, Jason. Well, corporate structure is also very militaristic in the sense that there's ranks, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, there's no getting away from it. Um, I spend so much of my time pointing out um, how woefully short it all falls that when I take, you know, Confucius's idea there, I get it. Um, I respect it. But uh, there are certain portions of the reality that I find myself in right now where I, I don't think I could reconcile it. And just to finish up on that point, I think it's being humble enough to recognize the fact that you, you, no matter what situation, you are not the be-all, end-all of that situation. There are others who could contribute to your point of view. And good, Yeah, good point. Yeah. So moving on, we have uh, the next point that Confucius makes. Cultivated knowledge can be more important than creativity. Confucius was adamant about the importance of the universal wisdom that comes from years of hard work and reflection. Benevolence, ritual propriety, righteousness... Wisdom and integrity are the five constant virtues. He believed that people were inherently good, but he also saw that virtues like these must be constantly cultivated like plants in a garden. He spoke of moral character and wisdom as the work of a lifetime. A burst of inspiration may be what we need to get something going, such as uh, you know, a new company or maybe you're writing music or something. But if we're being honest with ourselves, we must admit that we also need to devote more energy to slowly changing our habits for the better. This, more than anything else, is what prevents us from becoming truly accomplished and wise. You know, it's interesting to consider that, you know, what's the claim here? Five something BC um, is the supposed life of a supposed man named Confucius. But when you look at uh, a lot of the teaching, and you may or may not find value depending on the person and the resonance they find in it, um, but then you know that communism came along not too long after. Um, and I would I would say keep that in mind as you read through some of this. It's it's almost like communism was built knowing that some of these ideas were important within the culture, in a way, to me anyhow. Right. And uh, to kind of tie up the Confucius point of view in how these two philosophies of Buddha and Confucius relate to the Western world, 
it's almost the total opposite mentality, really. Um, you know, it's Western culture, as I was saying, is very egalitarian. And it is full of innovation, which is the one thing I do like. Because it's kind of set up as a dog-eat-dog world, everyone's trying to outdo each other. It's it's a individuality for individuality's sake, you might say. But it puts the individual always at the risk of becoming impulsive, irreverent, and thoughtless about ourselves and towards others, which is, again, the opposite of, of the Eastern mentality about gentleness and compassion for all things. So something to consider drawing more into your life. You don't necessarily have, like I said earlier, about throwing away technology and all that. I don't think it's that's necessary. But considering how you approach your life without being rash, I think is a good way of putting it. You know, what, what's interesting about this to me and one of the main reasons I wanted to do a show where we switch it up a little bit and we look at some of the Eastern mindsets is because in the West right now, so much of what we see is a lot of people sitting in front of cable news and that cable news forming their reality. And when you talk to these people, it's almost like you're really not talking to that person anymore. You're getting the opinions and the mindsets that were projected from these constructs and all this concern, and in many cases, the concern is rooted in events that, in my view, didn't even take place in the first place. They were just designed and broadcast to have an effect on the minds, which they clearly are. And so, for me, a lot of what we see in the Eastern teachings, and, and a lot of the, the teachings will open up by saying, don't just take this for granted. Don't take it because we told you it's true. Challenge it. And if you find fault in it, then cast it aside. Um, and to me, that's always been a very important thing. So I think that's the main point here. But I will also say we're at the top of the hour here, Jason. Um, you and I and James were talking after the last show, and I think we started to talk a bit about a text called the Dhammapada, which is how we ended up deciding that we were going to go down this road today. For the average person who just wants, in a nutshell, to look at a little bit of the at one of the Eastern ideals, you could look up the PDF called the Dhammapada. And um, the, the very first thing out of the gate, as I mentioned earlier, is that the mind precedes all. For me, that has become almost an immutable truth. I suppose maybe something could happen in my existence that might add something I know, know right now that might change that. But for right now, it is one of the few things that is nearly fully acceptable to me because I've challenged it so so profusely over the years. Um, and that's how we began to go down this road. And I just started to think that, you know, if everybody considered what does that mean, the mind precedes everything, would it begin to combat what things like cable news and false news and television and lying governments and corporations gone wild? Would it begin to combat that? And, and in some ways, I think it would. But anyhow, we're at the top of the hour here, Jason. Is there anything you want to add before we take the break? Well, in hour two, we're going to get into... Lao Tzu and Taoism and a few other bits of the uh, Eastern main points of Eastern philosophy. And then we're going to start comparing uh, how these things may have been drawn into secret societies and some of those viewpoints. Right. And there's a lot of sources that people can look up that probably demonstrate to my satisfaction, at least for the for the scope of this conversation, um, that almost certainly uh, Freemasonry and um, any of the other secret societies, which I maintain, are basically all in the same vein. Um, I don't really think that there is much difference between any of the secret societies. I think their their roots go back into this direction. And in some cases, you can flat out see where the claim is being made that Buddhism and Hinduism and maybe some older Indian uh, belief systems are the direct 
roots that led into Freemasonry, and we're going to talk about that, and it should be an interesting conversation. Anyhow, that brings us to the top of the first hour for Crow Triple Seven Radio, episode 51 with Jason Lindgren, examining the Eastern mindset and comparing and contrasting with how we live here in the West. Cheers. Cheers. 